Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. Running Motorsport Magazine Show. Midweek Motorsport. News, features, special guests, and analysis from the experts. Formula One, sports car and endurance racing, rallying, touring cars and bikes. If it has wheels and an engine and they keep score, it's on Midweek Motorsport. Uh, good morning, everybody, and I get to say that only a few times a year. It's just after 8 o'clock in the UK, just after 7 o'clock here in New South Wales. Yes, it's that time of year when Midweek Motorsport once again is on the road. And for two straight weeks, we are at iconic racing venues. Well, pretty much on different sides of the world, different sides of the Pacific Ocean, as the team, or at least... Uh, uh, Gearbox Girl, Shea Adam, uh, Blackpool Johnny, Johnny Palmer and me, John Hindhoff, have made the trip from Daytona, Florida to the central part of uh, New South Wales, up just over the Blue Mountains to Mount Panorama and Bathurst. And I'm very excited to be able to say that as I look slightly to my right, beyond Richard Creel, who we'll speak to in a moment, I see the Liquamolly Bridge. I see the final corner, because we are doing this show, or at least my part of it, uh, from our Channel 7 and 7 Mate uh, broadcast booth, where we'll also be doing our live commentary starting on Friday with the audio. Meantime, up in London is Tim Gray. A good evening to you. And good morning to you, and good morning listeners, and Happy New Year, everyone. You did that last week, but you could do it. To, you can do it to Creelsey. I haven't spoken to Richard Creelsey yet, so uh, Happy Happy New Year, Creelsey. Thank you, sir. Happy New Year to you. And on a packed program tonight, we have what? We have all the usual features. And we'll also be talking uh, about uh, this weekend in Bathurst. We'll be talking about what happened last weekend at Daytona. Uh, and lots, lots more. We'll be joined, hopefully, by our Formula One correspondent, Nick Damon. Although, at the moment, he can hear us, but we can't hear him. So, uh, we're just trying to sort that out. I, I think that's a perfect state of affairs, frankly. <laughs> yes. So where would you like to start this morning? I have my cup of Tregoffin tea, uh, which uh, is doing its restorative work. Never underestimate that because it was a slightly early start. And by the way, thank you very much to Luke and Steph for the uh, the team dinner last night, which was uh, on a curry theme, all homemade. Uh, Luke, uh, apart from his extraordinary IT skills, uh, is also, it seems, uh, a builder of valve amps but more importantly for last, which is very exciting, um, but more importantly for yesterday evening and for our, for us being fully serestified, uh, he is a rather splendid curry chef, did very good stuff, and I'm stealing definitely the uh, the battered chilies, stuffed chilies. They were 
outstanding. Where would you like to start uh, uh, with uh, the, the news tonight? We've got quite a lot of, of, of sad news in terms of people who have, have left us yes. uh, recently. Should we start with the new Tim, jingle? All the latest motorsport news from around the world. Midweek Motorsport. Uh, so as you say, uh, we have Richard Quayles with us. We do not yet have Nick Damon with us. Uh, so let's start with some Antipodean news. And unfortunately, as you mentioned, it is some sad Antipodean news. Uh, with two notable deaths from the uh, Australian motorsport world in the last few days. Uh First of all, uh, Ron Walker, the man behind the Melbourne Grand Prix, uh, died on Monday. Creelsey, this is uh, a giant of Australian motorsport, most recently known for that, but an entrant in his own right and, mm. and a man who had motorsport running through his uh, through his veins. Yeah, and, and not just motorsport, sport in general yes. as well, and, and hailing from Melbourne, which is likes to call itself the sporting capital of the world and unfortunately especially for those of us that don't come from there uh, it's hard to argue with that because they do sport extremely well um, yeah he was a doyen of sport there and and the crossover I suppose between sport and politics which is so important to generate the kind of funding and the support you need out of government to run major events these days so Ron Walker was Absolutely critical uh, back in the 90s to obtaining the Australian Grand Prix for Melbourne and for Albert Park uh, after its time in Adelaide. So 11 years in Adelaide, controversially poached by the Victorian government who did a a deal with Bernie Eccleston behind the scenes to grab the Grand Prix uh, to move it to Melbourne. But what they've done since then has been outstanding and they've built it into the, the template that Liberty Media, who have taken over Formula One, have been using to build their version of Formula One from an events point of view because they've always done it so well from the support program to the off-track stuff that they do so well down there. And, um, yeah, massively sad. Um, Ron had an amazing innings. He'd be the first to admit that, I would have thought. But, um, yeah, a huge loss to the industry and and his advocacy for motorsport in particular. And, And as I said, in that political sphere as well, was just absolutely vital. Uh, former Lord Mayor mm. uh, of uh, Melbourne, a, a staunch Melbourneian. Is yes, that, is that, what I, is that how I say it? Vernacular, yeah. Um, and banged that drum, much to the chagrin of certain people around the the Adelaide area, as you mentioned, of which you are one. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. that's your neck of the woods. Yeah, definitely. And, and there's, there's still, believe it or not, and, and I don't know if this is something that Adelaideans need to finally move on with or not, that's not for me to say, but there's still discussion about Victoria stealing, quote, our Grand Prix, our quote. Um, and, and yes, Ron was involved in that when the deal was put together. But um, as I said, what, what he did for the event after it was extraordinary. But his career stretches back decades and both in motor racing and outside of it and as you mentioned Lord Mayor of Melbourne so you had that the the political connections and probably more so the skills because I I would have thought that knocking on the door of government and going we've got an event for you but it's going to cost you between 10 and 40 million dollars a year to put on I would have thought that would be irrespective of whether it's Formula One or the Australian Open Tennis or whatever you get it you've got to sell it You've got to take that case to a government and go, this is why you need to invest in this. And that's what it seemed Mr. Walker was able to do in and really extol the virtues of that event and continue 
you know, obtain the support from the government and continue to build it? I only met him a couple of times, had to interview him um, a couple of times. Nick Damon, our Formula One correspondent, uh, joins us from a secret location somewhere in the carbon fibre triangle. Uh, good evening to you, Nick. And I'm, I'm aware there's a, a very long delay on the line, so uh, we'll bring you in on, on this. Uh, hello, Nick. Hello, John. Hello, Krause. Hello, Tim. Hello, everyone. Oh. Hooray, it's F1. Oh. And Happy New Year. And the yeah. uh, Did you cross paths with uh, Mr. Walker, with Ron, Ron Walker? You must have been doing the... Uh, Bernie Vision in the in the days when Ron was uh, uh, was supremo of the Australian Grand Prix, uh, which he was up until just a couple of years ago, of course. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I met um, several times. That's interesting. I don't think that we ever actually interviewed him. It was kind of a, it was a weird kind of um, protocol about who you couldn't couldn't interview, and uh, Ron for some reason was off limits. Um, but I met him on a couple of occasions, a couple of receptions, and uh, you know a larger-than-life character. And I think Crowley's already alluded to the, to the magic of a man who can convince a town to lose $20 million every year and make it seem like a good idea. And, of course, you know, as a true Melbourneian, as we've now made that word up, um, I think, you know, he carried the, he carried the province no, no, with him. And, uh, and I think he... Um, no, and I, I, he's, he's a really passionate uh, man of the of the area. I wanted to make Melbourne, the, you know, a, a stopping plug off place that the world recognised. I'm sure he wanted to get one over on Sydney as well. Um, he was a nice guy. He, he seemed to me, I'm sure he's a physical station, but whenever I met him, he was a really friendly, ebullient kind of. I suppose if you're going to say what does a typical Australian businessman look like to a British person, Ron Walker. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I think that's fair. I, I think there was probably almost a little bit of Kerry Packer about him as well and the yeah. way that, that Kerry went about revolutionising the cricket scene with World Series cricket. Almost bloody-mindedness yeah. in, in some respect, yeah. but he yeah. got things and done. Fierce loyalty, yeah. fierce determination, uh, fierce pride towards his product, which in his case was the state of Victoria and the city of Melbourne. Yeah. Um, Kerry was all about cricket and Australia and, and the rights of the players and things like that and, and his commercial dollar as well. So, yeah, I, I think that's that's accurate. L- larger than life in everything I've read and heard about what they talked about with, with Ron in the last week since his passing has been the, the number one thing. Larger than life, he was physically a large man, tall, always had a presence, even in his later years when he was perhaps a little bit more frail, um, being sort of driven around the paddock at Albert Park. But... The other thing was just the enormous respect that he carried. And, and whether you're Fernando Alonso or you're, in particular, the Australian drivers, because he did a lot for Mark Webber when Mark was in his early days of his career in Formula One, coming up through with Minardi. And then, you know, that famous moment on the podium when they got points on his debut and um, his involvement through the race and just great respect shown from people like Mark and now Dan Ricciardo from an Australian perspective to what he was able to do. Um, and sadly, it's not just Ron uh, that we are honouring at the moment. We will get a state funeral, uh, by the way, uh, in the next 10 days or so. Um, Steve Brabeck, mm. uh, not a, a name that will be as well known outside of Australia, but in Australia and particularly in supercar circles, yeah. uh, a, a man again who is you know, very well known and, and influential. Steve was... Uh key in keeping one of Australia's most famous racing teams alive in in Dick Johnson Racing. So he's been friends with Dick for a very long time and when DJR had their dramas through 2010, 11 into 2012 and the team was very, very close to shutting down, he was the one that came in 
and prop the team up, invested in it significantly with his own money from a business called Crimsafe, amongst other things, which makes um, sort of wire mesh protective security doors for, for houses, for public residences Fantastic and commercial applications. For Crimsafe. Yeah. It just does what it says it, on the absolutely. tin. That, that, again, is very Aussie, yeah, isn't it, is. it? Yeah, what it does on the tin is, is exactly right. So he was vital in keeping DJR alive, and, and it would be easy to suggest that without his involvement... Roger Penske would not be involved in the sport in Australia because it was Steve who allowed the team to continue, show that spark of promise that someone like Roger Penske could come in and go, well, it's worth me investing in this business because there's people like Steve involved from a business point of view. So if a successful businessman like him is involved, it's always going to give other people a bit more confidence to throw their money at a racing car team. So he's a huge loss. He had a lot of friends in the paddock, a lot of the supercar community in particular down here, very, very close to Steve. And it was a, I never met him personally, but I, I'd spoken to a lot of people since his passing about their dealings with him and apparently lovely guy, very easy going. He was a very under the radar guy. He, he wasn't a team owner that you'd see with the headset on calling yeah, the shots. Yeah, he didn't crave the, the publicity no. shots and talk to the cameras. No, no. Knew that Dick Johnson was the figurehead. That's that's where the brand was and just let that be. Well, in fairness, you can't get much bigger no, names figurehead, in, absolutely. In, in the sport than, than Dick mm. Johnson. But, but nevertheless, you, you have a feeling that some people would have tried to put themselves on the same level as yeah. that and... and bathed in the reflected glory. Yep. And Steve never did that. He yep. got on, he did his side of the job, his side of the job, made sure that everything was running logistically yep. and financially. And my goodness, what a job that was. Yeah. I, I think the biggest asset you can do as a team owner in coming into a team that is in financial drama and, and close to closing the doors is keep it alive. Yeah. Especially one with such a history that Dick Johnson's racing's got, bearing in mind that, that DJR as a brand stretches back to the mid-1970s here in Australia. So um, to be able to do that, keep that brand alive, and then, as I said, build it to a point where Roger Penske, bearing in mind, Roger Penske didn't take the full branding of that team. It's still DJR Team Penske. Yes. So, um, yeah, I think it's great, and, and he's going to be sorely missed as a character in the paddock, and, uh, and I think there's a lot of fans especially DJR fans, but, but motor racing fans in general who are very, very um, affectionate and very thankful to what uh, what Steve did to support that team. Uh, you're listening to Midweek Motorsports, uh, Creelsey and Hindy down here uh, at Bathurst, overlooking the start-finish line, the Liquid Molly Bridge just to our right, wind blowing just gently uh, behind the cars there would be. Still spooks me out, as I say, a Ford Ute coming the wrong way down the start-finish line. I've that never drew... So this, as you can't some do may it, not you? know, this is a public road for 330 yeah, yeah. days of the year. I've never, ever driven it backwards because it just it's seems wrong. wrong. Exactly. I've been I, coming here 15 years, never driven it the wrong way. Hello from your future. It's just after... In fact, it's exactly a quarter past seven here in New South Wales, quarter past eight yesterday evening uh, in, uh, in the UK. And I can't even work out where Carol Brink is, but she's li listening. So is Mickey Heth, Chris Humphreys, lots of people on live tonight. And you may well have just heard Creelsey and I was prediction, my predictions uh, for the event, which was... Um, an, an hour and a bit of us not making any sense at we all. We failed of completely any. at picking anything resembling a top three, didn't we? Yes. We recorded that not too long ago, and yeah. 
we failed. I, we went in with the objective of going, let's single out a few cars, but we just completely missed them. I, I suspect <laughs> that even after qualifying, we will be in the same yeah. same position. Uh, it is Midweek, Midweek Motorsports Series 13. This is the one from Bathurst, and Tim is going to take us somewhere else entirely next. Do you remember what this theme's uh, for, Nick Damon? Sounds like um, sounds very dramatic. Is it? Um, is it like election night? It is election night uh, because we have a wannabe politician. I've got many of those. Yes. Uh, which Brazilian racing driver says uh, he uh, might consider standing as president of the FIA in 2021? Oh, I'm having a senior moment. I know exactly who he is. I've got his face. I've got his blooming name. The guy. Um, um, uh, Lucas Degrassi. Got Lucas Degrassi is a correct answer. Uh, do we think he'd be a good politician? Um, well, he's uh, as good as any racing driver would be a politician. I think apparently, apparently he put out some intelligent tweets um, over Christmas and everyone said, oh, you should be the president of the FIA. I thought, not necessarily certain that uh, um, non-ridiculous tweeting is a recommendation for high political office, but I suppose compared to what we've got around the rest of the world, it might be better than some we have. Not tweeting at all is my recommendation for high political office. I think so. Well, any any, any, any yes, office in particular? Any, any office. Okay. Uh, where was I going? Uh, election. He, uh, no, I was talking about Lucas Degrassi, wasn't I? Uh, yep. He has apparently... Uh, five years ago said that uh, LMP1 was in real trouble and the FIA needed to do something about it. So he's... Uh, yeah, but I think we can all predict LMP1 on five years. Well, not really, because it's just the, the, the natural cycle of things. We, you know, it, it's, it's boom and bust always has been in the top division. It's, like, you know, it's not... That's not... That's not Mystic Meg. That's kind of relatively clued up with history. Mm. I mean, to be fair, we could probably have predicted it back in 1981. And in fact, I'm going to make a <laughs> prediction now. That uh, in around 12 years' time, uh, the top uh, class in sports car racing will be in a mess and will have to be reinvented. Uh, yep, that's because they're going to change it in six years. And yeah, I, I think that's fair enough. I think, I think you know, 12 to 14 years, it'll be a complete, you know, words you can't say. Uh, Unless Audi come back, in which case it'll be fine <laughs> for another decade and a half. Because that's the that's the, cash. the the. Uh, non-standard. Well, that's that. That's the non-standard variable that is is thrown in to, because that effectively, Audi's uh, uh, Audi's participation from 1998-99 onwards, basically shored up that class, and um, that wasn't that wasn't the normal average cyclical run that had been in the. No, it lasted longer than most cycles. That. Yes. Correct, mm. correct. And if you get that, if you get one manufacturer who completely commits to it, then you can have that stability. Um, that might be, bizarrely, that might be Toyota. But the problem, because Toyota have the cash to keep and the will to keep doing that, but because of the R&D... Toyota can be quite fickle, though. They do something and then move on to something else and then move back to what they were doing before. Yeah, yes, I agree with that. But what they don't have in this instance is the activity money, the activation money. And they don't spend in the way that Audi or Porsche 
uh, or even Peugeot when they were around did. But I still maintain, here's my prediction to make me head of the FIA, I still maintain that Audi will be back before Peugeot are. But anyway, that's, sorry, speaking to you. I'm, I'm speaking to you from the future, so I can, I can say you that can with, say some, that, uh, only the, with, with only the near some conviction. Future, not the distant future. This is, this is now as I'm in the worst ever oh. episode of Doctor Who, by the way. Um, <laughs> with the Daleks take over everyone. Very good. Uh, on to some more sad news for some people. Oh, Because oh. Uh, oh, no. uh, a, num- a number of people what? have been uh, sacked today uh, simply for being women. Yes. Well, they, I'm pretty certain oh, they yes. were on zero-hours contracts and they weren't actually employable. It wasn't like someone who's got a full-time job as grid girl. But, uh, yeah, the, the, um, the, the Liberty Media have decided to move with the zeitgeist and... Uh, say that they no longer wish to have uh, grid girls um, anymore as it's no longer with the brand values. That was a worrying part of the statement. They used the word brand values for a sport, but hey-ho, we are Americans. Um, I'm quite neutral on this. I think you know, there's, there, there are elements of grid girls in which, which I think are frankly exploitation, and we've talked about them before when they're you know, wearing nothing but lycra in freezing weather. But then, you know, when you see um, ladies modestly dressed in, in national dress and, and it adds to the colour of the grid and you know, or you could mix it 50 50 boys and girls I, I i don't see an actual problem with that so i suppose it's really uh, they're throwing out the baby with the bathwater because they don't like some of the more salubrious elements but actually the core point about it i think is okay charlotte gash who has been the grid girl since 2015 uh said uh, the decision has undermined gender equality uh, decades ago, the grid girls would wear skimpy outfits and bikinis, and the drivers would probably look at the grid girls as trophies. That attitude is completely gone. The opinion about grid girls is more outdated than the actual grid girls themselves, she said. It depends on the series. In some series, she's correct. In other series, she's very wrong. Uh, she's uh, worked across a number of uh, championships. She was one of the podium girls uh, on the uh, British Grand Prix last uh, year. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, think, well, I don't think it sets a very good example, I must admit, to, to, to young women. The bit I have a problem with is a bit at the end of the race where they form like a, a, a rather pointless guard clapping of guard of honour. Don't get that at all. That That is not um, helping on. But I think the actual holding, you know, holding the placard and, you know, the, the fine, someone, someone needs to hold those placards. So, you know, I'd rather it was, you know, and I'm just, but I think they, they should have just gone 50. See, that's, that's my point. That's my point. You need to mark what, the what, I think it's quite. What, I think. It's, I think. Really? You think the drivers are that dim that they can't find their own grid spot? Oh yes. I, I think it's part of the. I think it's part of the whole grid. I mean, I, I, you know, I think they should have. What they should have said is, we're going to go fifty-fifty boys and girls. And that's and have them dressed in appropriate non-sexualizing outfits. But, you know, like, just to you know, scrap it all together is like, well, I'm not really sure. I, I don't think that's the right way, I think. Because some people will, will, they will get people to do that job. People will hold the placard saying car 44 Lewis Hamilton. So how they're going to select them? They should have actually, rather than just going, we're not doing grid girls. They should, they should have actually come up with what we are going to do. And it should be, you know, it, it, great, be kids, be, be, be whatever it may be. But, but you know, I think it's uh, a useful part of the colour. I think it's a useful part of the, of, the, of the event. And the actual, to me again, having a girl holding a placard or having a boy is not an issue. It's what they're wearing. That's the issue. 
Well, I, I disagree entirely, but I like the idea of grid kids because A, it rhymes, ish, <laughs> and, uh, and B, um, in terms of brand value, um, which, by the way, both Creelty and I shook our heads at as, as you were mentioning the fact that Liberty had mentioned brand value with regard to Formula One. Um, I, I, I think in terms of brand value, if you subscribe to that, I think it's far better for your brand value and for growing the sport in the future. You put, you know, it's like mascots at a, at a soccer game or at a football game. Um, however you decide to get them, whether it's local kids from local schools, you run some kind of uh, lottery or competition or whatever, or it's as a reward for doing something particularly good. I don't care. Get the kids on the grid. You're building the next generation of fans because once you do that, they're a fan for life, Krilzy. I agree with that 100%. But, and, and I don't want to be glass half full about this, but does this just not smack of being an announcement that just takes the fact away that they haven't worked out what they're going to do to actually fix the real problems in Formula 1? Which is This is not the major problem of Formula 1 no, right now. No, it's not. In the grand scheme do, of things, it's girls. a pretty little issue. Great that they're tackling it. Brilliant. Good, let's get some tech regs that bring the field close together and cut some cost out of it and make the racing more competitive and more appealing to fans. And yeah, anyway. It's interesting, isn't it, that after the Taran Taran, we'll bring Nick back in on this at the moment here on Midweek Motorsport that you're listening to, uh, being presented uh, uh, from uh, Bathurst here, from Mount Panorama, from Milton Keynes, and from London. We're really stretching the technicals here today. Um, all live, all free. And, uh, you know, after the Tarantaranic of, of Liberty coming in new broom and sweeping clean, effectively, in a year or so, we've gone back to exactly the same entrenched positions from the principal players on either side of the argument. The manufacturers who put a huge amount of money into it, and by the way, I've been asked to put more money in it by Liberty, who want them to pay for all the promotional uh, bits and pieces around the Grand Prix, which the manufacturers have turned around and roundly said, uh, not not on your Nelly, um, possibly by fax, I'm not certain. Um, and, you know, we've got the manufacturers resisting Ross Braun's engine regulations and saying that's not going to cut costs, it's going to make it more, and besides which, that's not what we want to do. And we're just where we were before. My worry is, without the... What's the word I am looking for? Um, without the benevolent dictatorship of Bernie Eccleston, are we not going to be even in a worse position as Liberty fail to get their reforms through? And it could it could be bad news for everybody concerned. I think the situation really is that Liberty came in with a fanfare and fixed a couple of things instantaneously. Some of the stupid stuff like, you know, being able to actually do a bit of uh, Twitter or Periscope from a test session and that sort of stuff, but they they are they are they have an issue, and I have a lot more sympathy with with, with Liberty than I think most other people do. They have a t- most the low the low hanging fruit, and they are and they are trying to move the um, the way the sport is is covered into towards the, into the future. But they have an issue in that they can't change much else. Hence, the reason this is an announcement they can't. Change. They are nailed on with technical regs for another three years. They are nailed on with engine regs for another two years. They are nailed on a number of unpleasant TV contracts until 2024 because they're written in black and white. So, there's, you know, the crowd says, oh, they aren't, you know, they're not going out and just in the technical. Even if they knew what to do, even 
even they've got agreement from everybody to do it at the next regulation change, that's still two more seasons away. You can't change things overnight, even when you want them, because the way the various Concord agreements, and everything else is written to keep an element of stability. Um, and I think that, they, that, they, that is the issue. I, think, I don't think they do anything particularly bad. I think that they're trying to change the way the organisation has been run from absolutely correctly point. There's benevolent dictator, well, benevolent as long as you're on the right side of him, um, to a corporate side. And the corporate side is rankling us a little bit already with the brand and values. But they are doing what they can do. They're putting in the foundations they, can, they were put in. But they come up with the fact that they are fighting against time-limited factions, and they're also fighting against people who obviously want to keep their positions. You know, Ferrari was special to Bernie. Red Bull managed to make themselves special. The other teams want to get a bigger part of the pie. Liberty have basically said, you know, it's getting much more even, which is a great idea. Um, But if you say to someone at Ferrari, we're going to take 30 million or 50 million, 60 million quid away from you and give it to, well, half of it to marketing and the other half to a combination of four, um, Fifi and um, they're going to go, hang on, we don't want that. And they will push back and they'll come up with ridiculous quit claims and everything else because by threatening to quit, they think they can worry the, the, the corporate because obviously Liberty will, will don't look at it as we all ridiculous posturing. They'll go, oh, hang on, wait a second, you know, we're going to lose millions of dollars. Uh, but that has, having them done that, has stopped the um, anti-competition um, suit that the some teams had filed with the European Union for uh, not being treated uh, in a fair and even manner. Uh, and that's got them out of jail on that one, at least for the time being. But they have to deliver on that. And, and as you say, Nick, the problem being is redistributing the the wealth of Formula One, which is considerable. Um, what comes in uh, through the through the coffers, um, that is going to upset a lot of other people, Ferrari um, chief amongst them. I, 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 again, I just wonder how robust Liberty can be. Um, and, you know, Ferrari are going to try it on. Of course they are. Everyone's going to try it on with the new kids to see how far they they can push it. But, I mean, the 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 ultimate situation, as Krilzy mentioned there, and, and Rich, you know, you've hit the nail on the head, because ultimately, in a global marketplace that is now getting more crowded in terms of sport, motorsport, competing for people's time, in a broadcast template that is not what has we would think of traditionally in the last 15, 20 and further years back. Formula One has a position. Yes, it has. It has a position at the top of the tree. Mm. Yes, it has. But I think now more than any time, it doesn't necessarily mean that it will keep that as of right. No, no, I agree with that 100%. I think the frustration, and I, from my point of view, my, my comment was from that of a passionate Formula One fan who has been for for decades, who grew up with it in his hometown and continues to follow it and you know, stays up to watch as many Grands Prix as I can, given they start at 10 or 10.30 at night here. Um, so committed Formula One fan, and, and my feeling as a fan is that just not I'm not getting enough at this point out of what Liberty have come in. They, they came in all guns blazing with their plans to revolutionise the sport and change things up. And, and I know it takes time and I know there's contracts binding everything together and um, it, it's a 
very, very big, heavy ship that takes a long, long time to turn around. But, and I understand why they're making announcements about grid girls and things like that. But I, as a Formula One fan, I'm just frustrated that they're not even making long-term things going, well, here's a, here's a concept of what we're going to do with our generic car design in the future, or here's our template for engines. And again, realising this all takes a long time. It just, it, it just seems like they're wallpapering over cracks at the moment without actually tackling any big picture stuff. I might be wrong, but that's my sort of personal opinion as a race fan. Tim? On the subject of considerable wealth, uh, former Formula One driver Robert Dornbos uh, has said uh, it's unlikely there'll be a Dutch Grand Prix in the near future. At Zandvoort? Because they've got to build the track, haven't they? Or indeed, Assen. Oh uh, yeah, this is this is because Charlie Charlie did a visit, didn't he, to Assen last week? Yeah, both both tracks have expressed an interest in hosting a Formula One race. Uh, can't imagine why. Is there any reason for a surge of popularity in the Netherlands of Formula um, One? I hear that Jan Lammers might be in the Masters race support. Was that is that what it is? Uh, that could be it. Yes, or maybe yeah. maybe there's uh, someone just about to enter GP3 that. Uh, is, uh, no, it's it's no, sorry, it's Verstappen. Jos Verstappen's going to have a fight with someone in the paddock. Nothing new there. No. Uh, so <laughs> yes, uh, Robert, Robert Dunbos, who uh, uh, is very wealthy and has a lot of uh, uh, property on a Caribbean <laughs> island, uh, has said there are too many races in Europe. No. Right, 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 well, there's a lot less than there used to be. Um, I think I think that's no. There's not too many races in Europe. I think the the, the markets. Um, if you look at the races, the attendance for all the races was very good. Um, Belgium was packed out. I'm sure they would absolutely pack out a Dutch Grand Prix. Got fan, 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 fantastic fans there. Um, be interesting to see how many go to Germany this year, and be interesting to see how many go to Paul Ricard because that's a difficult place to get people into. So the uh, the attendance at Ricard for it's the return of the French Grand Prix very interesting. Indeed. Uh, I, 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 the, 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 too many races in Europe is an interesting, is an interesting thing. Um, you know, this is another liberty problem, isn't it? If they and, and I'm going with their view of it as a property, as a brand, as uh, a something that they want to develop. What is their mission statement? Do they want to take Formula One to the world and take it to new places? If so, they are going to have to risk going to places and taking some time to build a local audience there. You know, look at, at Bahrain. There's 25,000 seats uh, at, at the uh, autodrome at, at uh, Bahrain, at the racetrack of Bahrain, and they barely fill them all. And it's, that's been going there for quite a long time. You know, and, and, and even round by far the most people who go, go there are... Well, they, uh, and the, also the, by far the majority of people that go there are there as sporting... Uh, if you like sporting tourists, you know where do you want? You don't tell Liverpool that they can't play all their home games at Anfield because there's too many home games at Anfield. That's part of, and yet, you know, the Premier League, the English Premier League soccer again there, is still you know one of the biggest TV properties in the world, and people want to buy it and see it. Now I accept that Formula One is different, but I think you've got to be careful here that you don't devalue your core business and your core marketplace. Would it be nice to see um, new places? Yes, it would. But look, even at Quarter, huge investment at Quarter, a great circuit um, that 
drew people in to start with, and it's gradually, gradually tailing away in one of the biggest markets that Formula One wants to get into. And, you know, we were talking about Ron Walker at the at the uh, the start of the show, um, Crailsy, and you've got to be careful just simply moving an event within country. Um, that can cause issues. But what you've got to think of, where are you taking the brand? Where are you taking the sport? And, and Formula One could trip over with this, and we've seen various motorsports, uh, motorsports series trying to reinvent themselves and, and, and really losing their way. The whole new market thing is, is interesting, isn't it? That, that these organisations feel so compelled to go to open new avenues, and Formula One's attempt to push into the US is probably key to that as well. Um, but I, why would you not go to a place where you know that the first race you'll have there, you'll have 120,000 people rock up, and we're talking about the Dutch Grand yeah. Prix? Because that will be sold out. It will be a sea of orange, and everyone watching on TV around the world will go, oh, that's amazing. Look at all the people. It's the MotoGP effect. Yeah. That you, you watch a MotoGP race, any single race, and they're full of huge crowds, seething fans, Valentino Rossi flags, you know, the, the, the flags of the individual drivers and all that. And you watch it on TV and you go, wow, that's, that's amazing. That's how you capture a new market. You build yeah. it from that. But surely you've got to play to your strengths. Surely you've got to go to markets purely from a financial point of view where you've got strength. And, and the Dutch, having a Dutch Grand Prix is kind of going back to a new market because they haven't had one there for a while. And it opens up that sort of northern European region to it. You know, we've tried places uh, like Malaysia, we've tried India, and, you know, with varying success. Uh, Nick, I mean, are we coming back to this idea that we uh, heard that Liberty was thinking about, that you might get a biannual Grand Prix in Europe, and it might be, you know, the European Grand Prix is at uh, Zandvoort one year, it's at the Nürburgring the next um, there might be a uh, sort of Anglo, probably not the the British Grand Prix because everybody would shout about that. But you know what I mean. You could rotate through yep. through venues. That's not unheard of, and it has happened, and it has worked in the past. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing to remember about the way the Grand Prix has been uh, laid out over the past twenty years uh, under Bernie is it's been about who will pay the most money for a sanctioning fee, regardless of where that in the world and uh, any particularly unpleasant uh, human rights records. No one cares. So effectively, as the European t- European tracks couldn't afford the uh, the fees anymore and still make a profit, there was no one, no government backing. We went um, more and more. And obviously, that's result over for a while. We didn't have a French or a German Grand Prix. Luckily, got them both back this year. What Liberty have said uh, in their mail is they want to make every single individual event a Super Bowl, which is an interesting idea. But the idea is it's a whole week of events leading up to the individual race. They said they want to have 25 races and um, the season, and they've also they want more city centre races. So they want more races like Azerbaijan, Singapore, and, uh, and Monaco. Um, you know, that's, that's because they're trying to make events out of it and they and they perhaps don't see what the event is, perhaps the Hungara ring or, you know, and and that's, I think, again, it's, a, I think Krause said that you know, it, 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 this new market outreach is, 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 I think, a false dawn, a false nirvana. I think it's been proven it doesn't work. You need to cater to your core fans and then at the same time, yeah, go to new places, see how they go, but don't make them the be all and end all. Don't, don't, yeah, over over egg the pudding with twenty five races just because you want to go 
at a couple of new places, it'll give you a, a dodgy street circuit with a track, probably break up. Uh, one circuit where uh, they are assured uh, at least a decent track is uh, the Nürburgring, uh, and the boss of the Nürburgring has said he wants to be back on the Formula 1 calendar in 2019 and resume the uh, pattern of alternating with Hockenheim. Uh, you may remember, listener, that uh, since 2014, Hockenheim has been alternating with a gap. Um. Yeah, but I think yeah, that they, I'm sure he wants to do that, but obviously he'll need to have the money to do that, and that's been the sticking point for the last few years. I mean, I, I haven't heard the latest from my German correspondents, um, tends to be right turn lover and uh, Johannes, of course, who can tell us exact political machinations of the uh, Nürburgring bringing its ownership after the absolute disastrous uh, redesigning, uh, re- redevelopment attempts, what, 10 years ago now, nine years ago. Um, I mean, I think it'd be great. It's a good track. And it'd be great to have, you need a German Grand Prix as much as you need a French Grand Prix. And, and I am a traditionist in that way. I'm happy to have, you know, 10, 12 flyaways a year. If we have 10 European races. Uh, his name is Mirko Markfort. And he said, we want to get Formula One back at the ring, if possible, already in 2019. But this is only possible if meaningful economic conditions are taken into account. The business model a la Eccleston is passe. It does not pay off for us in ticket revenue alone. Uh, we'll move on to another exactly grump. Oh. Say there. Go on, John. Sorry, sorry, I know there's a big delay. Yeah, um, serious question, Ian. Exactly the point I was going to make to Nick. Um, are we looking at, in this brave new world of liberty of something that needs to... I mean, you know, liberty are asking all of those big Super Bowl week-long event things of the entrance, therefore the manufacturers or the sponsors, to pay for those. They're not looking to pay for them themselves. They're not necessarily looking for the venues to pay for them themselves. Are we looking now at a a completely different business model where just putting your hand out for cash isn't necessarily going to work because that money just isn't there anymore. And, you know, having worked, albeit quite some time ago, at a, now at a motorsport venue and spoken to series who expect just to get a load of, of money and leave you very few ways to recoup it. And in Formula One, it's very, very few ways of how to recoup it. Ticket prices can't keep climbing. And uh, you cannot just expect to divide your sanction fee effectively by how many seats you've got and hope that you can sell them all. That's not a, that's not a sustainable business model anymore. So our liberty, you know, has Bernie been more Machiavellian than we've ever realised and got out at the right time because he could see the business writing on the, the writing on the business wall, if you will, felt the way the wind was blowing. And realise that these big, huge, immense cash deals, even from emerging marketplaces and governments that need the positive PR, that those are going south, and somewhere there has to be a big rethink. Well, I think there is a. I think there's a think. There has to be a think down as such. I think the the, the money isn't finite and i think one of the things that liberty need to to get used to is the fact that they need to look more strategically about where you put the races and not only just look about who's going to give them the most dollars now the point about it really is that if they actually ended up taking three off each less from each sanctioning body or whatever, which, which made them more profit profitable by three million um then you all right they're down 60 million dollars but it doesn't really matter that much because you just the teams are spending so much money that asking them all to cut their budget by six million dollars is not that difficult they're employing a thousand people yeah it, you know it, all right, be, they'll, they'll all have to do one less iteration in the front wing you know 
they, you just have to what you need to do is they need to have expectations set of what's going to happen with the money and what's going to happen and why and if you say to them right okay you've got 400 million this year next year i'm afraid you only got 390 million and the year after 380 million but the net result is that they use that money to promote the sport in places it needs to be promoted and that's what needs to be done the kind of concept that you know, they will come is going to happen less and less especially now the sport is beginning to lose its foothold on any sort of terrestrial tv i know france exception and, and germany is an exception but most of the countries and the uk Italy, are losing all their terrestrial service and with that they'll go the same way as cricket and the same way as boxing they become marginalized and you won't have what you need which is a massive number of bums on seats to yeah, make these great. circuits play John? yeah the great absolutely agree tim well, i was just going to say don't you uh don't you think that uh, that promotion though is the job of the series f1 and the job of the sanctioning body to a certain extent because it is their flagship motorsport around the world. So the FIA need to get involved uh, as well here. I, I agree with you entirely. It's, there's, nobody is suggesting that Formula One is going to get less popular for, uh, with the people who find it exciting, important and want to watch it or for us people who have petrol running through our, our veins. I don't think that's the case. Uh, and people will still find it on television. Absolutely agree. But if you are making it harder and harder for the tracks, the guys who actually put the events on to recoup huge sanctioning fees, then it doesn't matter whether we really should be going to Silverstone or Spa or the Nürburgring. If they can't make a business case, and Silverstone, have, you know, Silverstone are the, are the flag bearer on this, I accept there was an, an element of, let's see if we can kick the new guys uh, before they get their feet under the table. Um, but Silverstone saying, we, we don't need to have the Grand Prix at any price. We've, we've, it doesn't work with our business model. And I don't think they'll be the last to do that. Uh, you're listening to Midweek Motorsport. Quarter to eight in the morning here in New South Wales. Quarter to nine in the evening. Back with Tim Gray, who's our executive producer. And he is up in London. Where next, Tim? Uh, just to prove we're live, it's half time and it's nil-nil. Oh, right, okay, good. Uh, Shall we play a little game? Yay! (laughs) I've some uh, Chase Carey quotes. Right. And I'm going to blank out a word, and you have to tell me what that word is. Uh, We'll start with you, Nick. Excellent. Right. We're excited about the opportunity to explore a potential race here in blank. Uh, Okay, I'm going to guess... Chile is incorrect john your line i think blank represents the type of location that we can that we think can really provide a great platform uh i'm going this is all the same place by the way or are these all different places one of them the first one is a country the second one is a city within that country and the third one which we'll come on to in a moment is a region (laughs) god Right, in the same country? Yes. Right, okay. The, the cities within um, the country in the region encompasses that country and other countries. Oh, blimey, right. okay. okay. I think... Um, I, I think it, it'll be... Uh, surely it's got to be... South America? I, I'm going with... I, I think Nick's... Right, so, South... Argentina. So you're trying to guess a city. So, uh, 
Oh, sorry. Um, Buenos Aires. Okay, so that line would be, I think Buenos Aires represents a type of location that we think can really provide a great platform. Okay, we'll move on back to Nick. Blank has been a great yep. part of our sport, and having local drivers is always a plus. Oh, South America. Ah. Uh, yeah, you would say South America, wouldn't you? But there aren't local jobs at the moment. Um, okay. Yeah, we've got Mexico. Well, see, I was, I was beginning to err on the side of um, Africa, but there are no Africans, so I'm, I'm going to stick with South America. You're all wrong. It's not Chile, it's not Argentina, it's not Buenos Aires, Spain? it's not South America. Uh, Spain, it could have been Spain if only he was running MotoGP. Uh <laughs> the actual quotes were we're excited about the opportunity to explore a potential race here in Denmark I think Copenhagen represents what? a type of location that we think can really provide a great platform really? Scandinavia has been a great part uh, of our sport and having local drivers is always a plus local driver well, it's, it's, well, it's Scandinavia race, of course includes Finland so that makes it three well not next year one what's that well because Kimmy won't be racing next year what after he's just unveiled his new helmet design. Well, yeah, no, no. He raced this year, but not next year. Uh, mm. Well, I'm very... I think Denmark's quite a bit wonderful, wonderful Copenhagen. Go for it. <laughs> they have a classic street race there, of course, don't they? Um, and so, you know, they're used to putting the infrastructure in, but I, I don't... I, you'd have to be, well I, th- you get nice weather there and they've got a fantastic cafe culture and yeah you know okay so nothing's off off the table but aren't we getting back again and I'm, I'm sorry to have to say this and I realise they're still in the you know first honeymoon period but um, you know aren't we getting to the sort of pronouncements from Chase Carey that we used to poo poo from from Bernard Charles um, saying well yeah, well, right. Let's look beyond that. So if he's saying that, what does he really mean? Who's he putting pressure on somewhere else? And, you know, it's the same as them talk, ridiculously talking about having a straight race in London, trying to put Silverstone's arm up their back. You know, that just isn't going to happen. It isn't going to happen. Not any time soon. And I just, I, I, don't think I, I just think we're getting back... No, I, just think, I don't think he's actually playing people off each other because they have got, in their wonderful world, three or four slots available. Um, perhaps, perhaps more if Silverson doesn't uh, come back in 2020. So they're not trying to get rid of someone. Uh, they're just trying to... Um, they're saying, oh, these are our extra races, street race, which is what they want. So, uh, yeah, Copenhagen is, is actually does fit their requirements. Probably I can't see how the heck Copenhagen can pay for it, but hey-ho. Needs to take a leaf out of Enzo Ferrari's book. When, uh, when asked, um, why is it that you produce uh, strange numbers of cars, 192 of this one, 101 of that one, 72 of this one? Why not, you know, 200 and 120 and 80 or 100? And Enzo's brilliant reply always was, I always build one fewer than I think we can sell. And in that way, you keep the exclusivity and the guys who buy the cars have an asset that is less likely to depreciate. And that's exactly the same with Formula One. 
be very careful going to 25 races because you might find that there's not still that queue of people knocking at the door, given what we were talking about, about the business case. And listen, it sounds like I'm banging on about Liberty not doing their job properly. And, you know, in some ways, I'm just flagging up that new Formula One doesn't look that much different to old Formula One. And guess what? They're finding the same sort of problems. And I don't think making 25 races around the world in the year is actually going to solve any of their problems. Quite the reverse. Uh, Nick, how much uh, do you think a Danish Grand Prix will cost Denmark? What, a year? Yes. £20 million? Pounds? Sorry, uh, £24 Can million. Give dollars. me the uh, figure in Danish kroner, please. Oh, it's about... 24, about 10 to the pound, so 240 million kroner. Uh, they're estimating 400 million. Okay, that probably includes all the infrastructure changes as well as the sanctioning fee. Uh, when was the last time we had a Grand Prix How'd in you get Denmark? That back? A Grand Prix in Denmark? Uh, l- oh, let me know. just uh, ask, answer uh, Nick's, uh, John's question. How do you get that back? Have we ever spent money in Copenhagen? Everything's really expensive. <laughs> really expensive. You're yes, but it's really expensive now. It doesn't need beer. Formula One to make it more expensive. Hmm. Good point. Well made. Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't know. I didn't think it was. I thought you know, the most recent Scandinavian Grand Prix, which of course was Anderstorp in, in 1980, but I don't know. Tell me, when was the last Danish Grand Prix? 1962. It was a fantastic year, Nick. It was a fa- 62. <laughs> <laughs> who who won that, you? John? <sighs> Give you a clue. Where I are don't you? Know. I know that it was Jack Brabham. It was Jack Brabham? Yes. Well, that's I interesting because the... it was a very small track. It was only three quarters of a mile, the track. And Jack Brabham was very good on short tracks. He was very good on every track. I went to Catalina Raceway on my way back from here a few years ago, and Jack Brabham still holds, Sir Jack Brabham, still holds the lap record around there in a Formula 5000 car. And I, I looked at that place and what's left of it and thought, man, he was different gravy. And all the guys were to drive around there in those kind of cars. Oh, just hmm. to me. It, it was uh, Rockkilder, wasn't it, the place that it was at? It was, was Kilder, yes. So was that a. Um there wasn't a championship racer, was it? Probably not. I'm pretty certain they'd never have a championship race in a track that short, but, you know, hey-ho. There were a lot of non-championship racing in those days. Cause it was they actually before did we were outside. born, Nick, so... That is true. Yeah, only John would be able to Sorry, report on that Sorry, yes. It was, one, it's, it was 1.4 miles. Sorry. Uh, 1.4 miles in its final iteration. Uh, mm. 2.3 kilometres. I had to look that up, though. I thought it was shorter than that. Uh, the most wins there was by a driver called Jack Nellerman, uh, who uh, had four wins uh, in the Grand Prix. And it says it was held 13 times mm. there. But I'm not All sure the how same that weekend. works if it was first <laughs> held in 1960. And it finished in 1962. So uh, uh, Maybe it was a yeah. uh, okay. four-times-a-year event. Uh, let's move on. And uh, who still has 25 races left to do this year? Well, um, obviously about 50 drivers have 35 because they've got the NASCAR series. But I believe you're talking about, about, about Mr. Fernando Alonso. That is he, yes. So he's actually got a massive four extra races, the races he already had. So they are quite long races. 
plus the one he's already done. Yes, and they haven't mentioned Tesla either. It's not really a race. No, but it's a long about driving though, isn't it? You know. But let's be, let's be really, really honest about this. Yeah, he will still do a lot less miles in the car than he would have done in 1999 with 17 races, but all the testing. And he will do a lot less days in the car as well. So it's, that's just what we expect now. But if you think every week they were testing every week, all right, not every driver did every week, but they were doing thousands and thousands of miles in the top teams. Yeah, but at, at uh, did, did McLaren, anybody... he wouldn't have done very much at all because Gary Paffitt would have been in the car all the time. You'd be moaning too much to get in. Uh, no, no, the, the race drivers did a lot, of, still did a lot of testing. Um, did anybody else notice the fact that uh, McLaren announced his, effectively announced his Toyota drive before Toyota did, 20 minutes beforehand, which I thought was very interesting. Um, and... The other thing that's interesting about that, and it was pointed out by a number of listeners when I was tweeting about it, um, and and fair point, because I had forgotten this, they've released him um, to go and do the races in the 2018 part of the transition season in the WAC for Toyota, but there was no mention made about 2019. And of course, the 2019 Formula One calendar isn't out yet, so we don't know whether there's any clashes um, in terms of what which ones he'd be able to do. And then it was pointed out to me, which I'd completely forgotten, he's only contracted to the end of the year with McLaren Honda. Um, no, no, and we no, don't know what no, he's doing. McLaren so right. It's not Honda anymore, is it? Uh, McLaren Renault, sorry. Yes, sorry, McLaren. Yes, sorry. So, are we are we taking from this? Sorry, I've just uh, people down at the McLaren Technical Centre have just shivered as I reminded them of their, um, <laughs> their Honda <laughs> relationship. Um, uh, sorry, gentlemen and ladies. Um, so, are we taking from this then that he's not definitely not staying on in 2019 with McLaren, um, and? Therefore, is he likely to be in Formula One at all? Or is this effectively, in a quiet way, announcing Fernando Alonso going to sports car racing full-time from 2019 onwards? No, it's announcing and keeping his options open. You know, he's managed to um, sit the art at the back of, um, of McLaren and get them to do what he wants to do. Uh, and I'm sure if the car's really, really good and he gets a positive feeling about it, he'll be happy to do some more F1. Otherwise, we'll be trying to find ways of um, getting this triple clown he's after and, and you know realistically he's now I know it's a difficult thing to say given this year if any has given himself a 50-50 chance of winning uh, Le Mans um, so he will then be he'll focusing... never have a better chance of winning Le Mans uh, Nick no. he'll never have a better chance of winning Le Mans and winning a, a driver's championship than in this transition period where Toyota well, are the problem. only major no, manufacturer. He's going to have a problem with the Drivers' Championship because he's going to ha- he, he, we know he's missing one race. So unless his teammates don't score any points in that race, he'll never be the same as the other two in his team. So he, his chance of going yeah, WEC World Champion is, is unlikely. Um, his chance of winning Le Mans, I think, is 50-50. I know, I know everyone's saying, well, they all break down. Yeah, they could all break down. But you kind of feel that, it, especially in the first year of the uh, new LMP1s in, but they won't be at maximum attack at, at that point. They'll only have had at most, what, three months running any of them would have had. So it's a great chance to get the Le Mans under his belt. It's um, a... There you can just see where he is come August, the summer. He'll, he'll know where he is with that 
uh, ambition. He'll know where he is, how good the McLaren car is compared to everyone else, and then he can decide what to do. And he's got a, you know, it's, it, he's decided. You know, he's never going to get the multiple world champions he wants in F1. So he's going to make himself famous, not famous, um, uh, make himself a legend in a different way. Can I make a prediction here, gentlemen? I, I don't think he'll miss the Fuji round. I don't think he'll go to and do the US Grand Prix. I think that it's too big a race for Toyota. It's on home ground. And I think that um, he won't end up at the US Grand Prix. And also in all of this, um, let's uh, have a word for Anthony Davidson as well, also a world champion, who, um, is, who has been replaced effectively by uh, Alonso. And, you know, we need to get to the bottom of that story. Ant missed a race uh, last season and we never really got a, a, a satisfactory... I'm sorry, that's, that sounds wrong. That sounds like I'm being entitled. We didn't really get down to that because we respected Ant and the team when they said he's missed a race, it was personal, etc., etc. Um, now it, it's beginning to look as though there was something going on there. And, I, you know, I don't need to know, but I'm just saying put that in... Uh, put that in perspective. And if this is uh, the twilight of Anthony Davidson's career, then we need to note that, mark it, and make sure it's it's correctly honoured. Yeah, I agree. I think I think Anthony, obviously, there was something happened in the middle of the year, had this break, came back, drove brilliantly in the final three races, um, and uh, has been parked. I mean, much like the Nico Lapierre situation a few years earlier, where he missed a race for unforeseen reasons and everyone kind of went oh no it's fine it's fine and he was dropped the following year admittedly came back three years later um yeah i think i think i think the Alonso thing is, is interesting i think he's again he's played a tactical masterstroke obviously he's spent his most of his career painting himself into ridiculous corners at this point at least he is now master his own destiny in what he's now decided his aim in life which is yes. the triple crown Good point. so you've got to respect him for that i think he will i think whether he goes to austin or not will depend entirely how good the McLaren car is. If he thinks he can get the podium on the car, he'll turn up. If he thinks he'll be trolling around in ninth, he'll find a reason not to be there. Which is good news for Landon Norris. Still to come on Midweek Motorsport. And is there any chance you could bring some dessert to the VO booth, please? <laughs> Very good. Um... Live from Bathurst, I'm overlooking the start-finish straight at Mount Panorama, where it's just after 8 o'clock in the morning, just after 9 in the UK. Keep the twittering coming to at Specutainment. I'm keeping an eye on that as well. Uh, hello to my dad, who's listening into the full show tonight. It's still uh, on the road to recovery. I've got your email. Thanks, Dad. Uh, and in the second half of tonight's programme, more of the same. Krillzy will be back as we look at the big race here, the Liquid Molly Bathurst 12 hours. And we'll also be talking more about last weekend's race and Fernando Alonso. All still to come on this episode of Midweek Motorsport on RS1, part of the Radio Show Limited network of channels. Midweek Motorsport on RS1. Uh, that was a bit longer than I expected. My apologies. Um, and me. Uh, shall we start the second? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I did so well with the normal amount of time. Um, shall we stay with the uh, Alonso uh, thing? And uh, Because I, I, I don't think this is very interesting. Um, as, as Nick has said, he, he's, 
he's carved out a niche for himself going forward, which I think is very smart. Um, he didn't have the best um, Rolex Daytona 24 hours, uh, 24 hours of Daytona. Um, but, you know, he, he, he led the race. He did lead the race. That car led the race twice, once in his hands and once in, was it Lando at the wheel of that? I've, I've now dumped all the information from my my brain. But anyway, the 23 car led twice, and Alonso's name did top the timing screens, which I'm sure sent all the Formula One journalists into um, into rapture. Um, it was very interesting. Um, how how do we think then he will settle in, Nick, to that Toyota team? Um, it, it was a baptism of fire for. Pachito when he did it and sort of crossed chords. I'm a big fan of of people being um, master of many trades, and and I think Alonso could easily do that. I, I was fortunate enough to to talk with Vic Elford on in a Porsche promotion when I was at the Rolex 24 Daytona, and he is always the the man that I hold up as a shining life light as uh, a very um, a driver who did everything and was successful in everything. Um, considering the rest of that chat included Hurley Haywood and, and Pat Long, you can imagine I had to be basically dragged out of there. I could have been there until now. It was fa- fabulous. I mean, he's he's clearly made that decision some time ago. He's worked his way into that position. Toyota were, his, were the only game in town. Um, but he's got to deliver. Uh, it's, it's in some ways still quite brave for Alonso, because doing these cross-code things, as we've discussed on this programme before, you can fall flat on your face because he's not necessarily going to be the quickest guy in that car. Absolutely not, no. Um, but I think, you know, he has the... He's, he's never been short on confidence and self-belief. Um, and he appears to be approaching it for the right reasons. So I, I, gen, I genuinely think it's, it's, it's a fabulous coup for the WBC. It's a fabulous coup for... The Toyota, it's a marvellous thing uh, for uh, Alonso, and it isn't that bad from, from Claren either. Um, so I think it's one of those rare things where everybody wins. Um, apart from Matt Davidson, I suppose you'd probably say. Um, I think it's going it's gonna, to it's gonna be a, a really useful thing um, for, for Le Mans in its first year with um, you know no manufacturer competition. It gives it that that cachet to get some some Spanish people up and over in the fat and Alonso fans and get the Alonso effect. I'm sure Silverstone are absolutely chuffed to bits that he's coming along to uh, the Grand Prix circuit in August as well. So um, I don't I don't see any downsides to this, and I think it's uh, it's it's one of those. It, it really is a case where. You know, he, he will be quick enough, whether he be the fastest person in the car, who knows? But I think he, he's already proven he can do the stamina, he can do the uh, um, the the stints, he can do wake up at night. He answered Joe Bradley's question brilliantly about that in uh, <laughs> in Daytona. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it's I think it's great. And I, yeah, and, I, and I do wish that we had a little bit more crossover from F1 drivers anyway. And it was nicely Lance Strolls in Daytona as well. Yeah. And obviously Paul DeResta. But he's yeah. gonna get that's the problem is that's, sorry, Jordan, that's gonna get more difficult as we go to Grand Prix. Yeah, I no, I, I agree I agree with that. Uh, I agree with all of that. I, the one thing I would challenge there, is it a coup? I, I mean it's good news for uh, the WEC, but they haven't done anything to get him. This is this is an Alonso choice and a Toyota making room for him. Um so you know, credit credit Toyota. Uh, again, you know, Ant, um, we're thinking about you. Yeah, I, I have no idea what's behind this, and it, we, maybe we never find out, and it might be it, 
and it's none of our business if he doesn't want to talk about it. Um, but, you know, Alonso's made this decision. It hasn't been the fact that anybody from the WAC has prized him away from Formula One. This is, this is not, in some respects, the as big a news in terms of the status of the WEC as it was for Mark Webber, who stepped away from a drive in Formula One to go and do the WEC. Now, I accept that Alonso, with due respect to where I'm sitting in the moment, is probably a bigger name in Formula One with two world championships under his belt than, than Mark was. But you see what I'm talking about there. I, I don't doubt that it's good. I don't doubt that it's good. But... Um, I, I do. I, I, I think this is an Alonso choice, and this is coming through the window to use an old sales term for the WEC. And my goodness, don't they need it in the in this transition period? Which I believe that they need to do, and I certainly think moving to the autumn to Le Mans calendar is the right thing to do. This is not necessarily the most elegant way of getting there, but something had to be done. And I, I think I think it's interesting times. We, we need to find out. There's a book somewhere called What the WEC Called Did Next. Um, and, <laughs> you know, that... that um, so, anyway, um, let's talk a little bit about the Rolex 24 Daytona. Um, as Tim, I believe, is, is nipping off to take some dessert to Mark in the VO booth. Um, but apparently it's not, good, not impressive. It's only a yoghurt. Um, the... Uh, the bizarre thing here is, of course, once I'm finished here, I'm going back to cook breakfast for everybody um, rather than doing dinner uh, before the show. Uh, anyway, um, let's talk about the Rolex 24 Daytona. Um, impressive win by the Action Express. Imp- imp- impressive uh, running by both the Action Express cars. Um, controversy, controversy, lots of controversy. Uh, let's start with uh, the tyre issue. We have to start with that. Continental steadfastly saying same um, construction and compound of tyres that everybody have used for five years. One or two teams, including the champion team, Wayne Taylor Racing, saying that uh, you know Wayne withdrawing the car effectively after five punctures, two of which uh, at the time were definitely put down uh, to uh, debris or some kind of puncture rather than a tyre failure. The other three were still being investigated as I was leaving Florida, uh, but a raft of them. Um, there's been a bit of Twitterage through the week from a number of drivers, team owners uh, on both sides of the argument, but it does seem to me slightly going in the favour of Continental, Nick, with uh, Ryan DL saying I was behind a couple of people when they had punctures and they had been consistently riding the uh, curbs and going over the inside of the curbs at the bus stop. Those curbs have always been nasty. They got worse during the race. Um, uh, Team owners saying we had no problems whatsoever. Um, And, you know, we ran to, uh, we ran to uh, the recommendations on tire pressures, cameras, etc. It's not, I mean, it doesn't, in some respects, it does matter whose fault it is, but this isn't a blame game. And it's sad that this is the, the last season for, for Conti Tyres. And, and really, we just need to get to the bottom of it, find out and make sure it doesn't happen again and move on, don't we? Absolutely. I think, you know, there are... It's obviously, it's a uniquely difficult circuit to set time with the, um, with the banking who puts a lot of loads on that, that right rear. The fact is that the, 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 the cars are set up in a certain way by teams and teams can heavily affect whether your tyre has a has a problem by the way they set their car up even if you set your car up in what you would normally think was a um 
let's think a you know a, a safe area you know it's it, it but you know I, we see it time and time again time again we see teams who blow tires blow tires blow tires and then they make a small adjustment on their suspension you know, i'm thinking of the uh, the grass lamborghini in, in uh, the dubai 24 hours and suddenly they don't blow tires anymore so you know, or they're perhaps they're yeah, really right point. on the lower level of, of pressure. The other thing to remember is, I think the key point is that um, a couple of things about it. The good point by Ryan DL about the, the, the curbs, always a major uh, culprit for tyres going. Second thing is the cars are getting quicker. Cars are getting quicker. The loads are going up. You know, the tyre is not a new tyre for this year. It's been around for a couple of years, and it's not even a specific tyre of Daytona, I believe. So, you know, the loads are going up as the cars get quicker. And that race was remarkable for how long it ran in green. They ran lap after lap after lap after lap after lap in yes. green, which means the tyres were constantly under stress. They weren't getting a little relax in, on the, all the constant yellows. More importantly, the, there would be more debris on the track because, as we all know, IMSA and the American organisation, yep. when there's a yellow, take, take an opportunity to clear the track. Well, they only had was it four in the whole year, race, five in the whole race. So that means that in between Correct. the periods, there's more yep. and more and more rubbish getting onto the track so suddenly you can have more debris cars going faster it looks like you've got a slightly dodgy cur- cur- curb situation which can happen as a track evolves through age and other things running it so you seem to have to me to have a perfect storm of what may be causing it for a, an issue and it's obviously if one car then has a bit of bad luck it's set up on the edge anyway they will blow lots of tires and, it's, it, and you kind of have to work it out and, and move back on your settings i would think um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed the race, and I think the lack of yellow actually made it a very interesting race for me. One of the criticisms that we often get about Daytona is it's too easy to get your lap back because there's so many yellows. So, you know, if you make a mistake, that doesn't really matter. Um, if there's a mistake in the pits or you get a drive-through or you get penalised, it doesn't really matter. And that wasn't the case this year. What we saw was tiny little incremental differences if you look at the GT Le Mans battle between the Chip Ganassi Fords and the Corvettes, you know, when we came off the yellow, uh, it was Mike Rockenfeller who was at the wheel of the leading Corvette at the time. He held on to those Fords for oh, half an hour, 40 minutes maybe, and, and, the, and the gap was never really much more than uh, five seconds. And then just at the end of the stint, it started to go out a tenth, two tenths, three tenths a lap. And all of a sudden, by the end of his stint, he was 11 seconds back. Uh, Jan Magnussen got in the car, held it, held it, held it. And then by the end of the stint, you know, it was tiny little increments. It was 20 odd seconds. It was, I thought that was magnificent because what we saw there was the true performance levels of the cars without the intervention of packing the field back up again what well, it also meant nick and here's an, a, another and it's interesting I, sorry i'm sort of interrupt myself here interesting <laughs> that some people say oh well that was a boring race because you know there wasn't that much racing but there was it was absolutely on the ragged edge every single lap if you could take half a tenth or a tenth or two tenths out of people on the track then you know that was a real benefit to you because we weren't getting packed up again and that to me that that was a classic endurance race run you know literally at top speed all the time until the cars started to fail and everybody was having problems the two leading cars that were run by action express both with overheating problems and having to be babied towards the end um it's a good job we weren't putting some of the pitch the car radio to the air of what was going on and how people were being asked to to moderate their driving and the answers that the drivers were giving back to their pits were colourful 
to say the least. <laughs> but any gap that you created in terms of uh, you know building a gap or losing time was really massively important. And of course, Land Motorsport in GT Daytona, and here's the other controversy, massive controversy, which um, I don't think we'll officially get to the bottom of. I, I'm fairly certain from, uh, I had time to get around the paddock at a Daytona, and I'm fairly certain I know exactly what's happened to the point where in the race I was uh, confident enough to make some quite big pronouncements when this happened. Land Motorsport were pinged for going outside of BOP. Um, it's a very all-encompassing regulation that they were grabbed, um, exceeding the expectations of, of BOP, effectively. I'm paraphrasing that. And this was all down to their fuel stops and the amount of time that IMSA expected them to do their fuel stops. Now, if you weren't listening, or even if you were, I, I want to put some meat on the bones here. Um, GT3, GT Daytona, is a BOP class, and part of the BOP is that really the efficiency or lack thereof of your engine doesn't come in to play. Now, you can argue as the day is long whether that's right, wrong, or indifferent, but that's a BOP class. That's what happens. So, if, Nick, you have a car that has a slightly smaller and more efficient engine, maybe doesn't put out as much torque and power, um, and let's say for argument, and I'm making up these numbers, that IMSA decide that they, they want the GT3s to roughly speak and do 30 laps. And to do 30 laps, you need 81 litres of fuel. I, however, choose the big engine, the huge engine, with lots of power, lots of torque, but incredibly gas guzzly, and I need 110 litres to do the same 30 laps. What IMSA do is to take out the engine performance out of the BOP equation in terms of its fuel mileage performance, they restrict your fueling, your fueling, which is in an IMSA-supplied rig, which is sealed by IMSA before the race, they restrict that so it takes, and again, this is, this is a real number now then, it needs to take um, 40 seconds. 40 seconds for you to put your 81 litres in. My 110 litres goes in at 40 seconds as well, so I get a much bigger restrictor for the fuel flow. They're all gravity-fed, so there's nothing else to be said about that. That's how it's done. IMSA do the calculations. In an average of five pit stops, the 29 land uh, was averaging somewhere around about 35.4 seconds to fill their car. So they were pinged for being outside the expected time. Now, that being said, I went immediately and had a chat with some people, and so did Jeremy. IMSA never suggested, and nor has it been found, that the rig had been tampered with or modified. Subsequently, I made some uh, inquiries around the paddock, and, by the way, IMSA took three hours to uh, tech the car, the 29 car afterwards, and found exactly the same. None of the car, none of the car, no part was outside homologation, and neither uh, was it outside the regulations as presented. So the car was legal, the team did nothing wrong, which is what Christian Land said on our Continental Tire Pitlane report to Joe Bradley, and he had the first uh, of that, and, and, uh, and uh, he also told us what they'd been pinged for. Um, so they did nothing wrong, there was nothing illegal about the car, and therefore they were a little bit nonplussed. However, 
and <laughs> I said this at the time when we had Johnny Morlam in the bo- uh, in the booth. However, it's a BOP class, and they were outside the BOP. Therefore, that gives the organisers the opportunity to say, "No, you can't do that." I'm sorry, you're outside real-time telemetry, real-time uh, um, assessment of, of the BOP. Um, so basically what we're seeing, and I'm not going to say exactly what happened and how it was achieved, but I know what happened and was achieved by some clever thinking by land, none of which was outside any rule that was written down and none of which was outside any homologation of that Audi manage give a bit of time from their pit stops whichever way you look at it that is in some ways part of motor racing they lost by a quarter of a second last year they were going to make sure that they weren't going to do that this year and so they optimized everything about their pit stops you spend a lot of time in the pits over 30 visits to the pits at uh, daytona in an average race and so they wanted to make sure that they spent the least time in the pits as possible without doing anything outside the regulations without doing anything outside of the homologation. IMSA saw that advantage as breaking the BOP. And this is the problem. It is a problem. IMSA are absolutely right, but Land are absolutely right as well. And unfortunately, it took them out of the race because we didn't have enough time for them to make up that five minutes, which effectively was two and a bit laps. Um, The fix, by the way, and a lot of people said... What was the fix? The fix was strangling their uh, fuel flow by partially um, enabling the dead man's handle. So that was done by the team to make sure that they did the 40 seconds of fuel every time after that. And so that is the situation. You can call it whichever way you want. As I was saying, I'm not going to say how the efficiency was made because it was it was clever thinking by land very clever thinking indeed but it didn't break any rules it didn't break the homologation but by the same token when you're in a BOP class IMSA had a decision to make they made a decision Um, I, I think it's an impossible situation for both people but that I'm afraid is the rabbit hole that you go down when you've got BOP yeah I think it's um well, yeah, I mean, I, it seems like a very draconian penalty if no one's actually done anything specifically illegal. They're just trying to sharpen a razor blade. It seems if they're gaining five seconds of pit stop, then rather than giving them five minutes, you should give them half hour, half hour, half minute stop and hold, um, and then fix the problem. But I assume, therefore, that IMS must have assumed prior to that point they were um, they were actually cheating rather than just being clever. Um, yes, it, it was very carefully worded. And Audi were uh, keen to make the point to race control and the uh, technical side of things that there was no cheating involved whatsoever. And there was not. And this is not the same situation of the Lamborghini teams in the race um, using a, an illegal restrictor in their engine. Clever, but still illegal. And pointed out to be illegal and shown to be illegal and being told not to use that. This is not that. This is something where they have used brain power and been able to make efficiencies in their pit stop. And in the fueling process, yes, 
but without going outside the, the homologation of the car or breaking any regulations with regards to... And, and regulations, by the way, that are lengthy and full and quite prescriptive about what you can and, do, can and can't do with GT3 cars. And none mm. of those were broken. Uh, I think it was a situation, if I'm honest, um, I think it was a situation that probably could have been avoided if Land had been more used to dealing with IMSA and IMSA had been more used to dealing with Land. Um, they're not full-season competitors. Um, I, I have found with my dealings with the IMSA Tech team, um, with Jeff and Simon and the rest of their team, them to be incredibly forthcoming. Um, it might have been worth land going out, you know, like the old Formula One days, Nick, where a team would turn up and say, uh, we've made this change. This is, what, this is why we've done it. Um, this is what we're planning to do. Are you going to ping us for it? We think it's legal. And, mm. you know, it might have been worthwhile. Uh, IMSA uh, took a very long time to, to make this decision, so it wasn't made on a whim. And it was done over, it was averaged out over five uh, pit stops. Um, it might have been worth them going and saying, how are you doing this? Is, you know, we can see the seals aren't broken, so you must be cheap at cheating. Audi say, and, and Lance say, no, we're not cheating. This is how we're doing it. And there's nothing against that in the regulations. IMSA then going back and reading the regulations saying, yeah, you're absolutely right. So we've made a mistake. And therefore, we need to legislate a bit against this. But, but for me, that should have been done after the race and not during the race. Well, they could have turned around and said, look, you know, you've done something. Well done. Uh, now you better make sure you're fueling for 40 seconds from now on. You know, it, it, they must. I think, yeah. yeah. I assume what you're alluding to is they were uh, they were working on the improving the air exchange, so getting the air out of the tank quicker to get the fuel back in faster would be about my way you would work on the car in a very clean way. Um, I might be wrong. That's what I guess. There, um, was, there was two. There was there was two separate parts that they that they that they um, maximised the efficiency on, um, and it it was all done as I say very cleverly. Um, and it was all, I mean, one of them is absolute genius, is absolute genius, and, I, and I'm hopeful that it will come out at some stage, um, and it is so obvious, it is so obvious, it's a tiny, again, it's down to tiny increments, Nick, uh, that make, you know, that make a, a difference here, it is so obvious once you've realised what's going on, and mm. I had to watch several of their pit stops to realise what it was. Um, fortunately, in the Audi Boardwalk Club, where we were doing some stand-ups, um, we had a... Um, Sean, the technical guy, had rigged up a, a webcam so we could see all the pit stops. And it, it, having watched a few, it dawned on me what was going on. And it is absolute genius, given the way the refuelling regulations work and what you're given to do the refuelling. Um, it, it was genius and I do hope it comes out because I, I want in some ways I want it to come out because I want everybody to understand that land did nothing wrong I also think it's important to say that really by the letter of the law um, that IMSA did nothing wrong because the car was outside its BOP but it was outside its BOP by clever thinking and not by cheating but it was still outside its BOP 
And, and I find that disappointing, not from an IMSA point of view, but that's BOP, as I said. Well, that's, um, it, 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 I suppose it depends if you think the BOP is um, a technical regulation or just a guideline to even the cars up. Well, it's a sporting regulation and a technical regulation. That's a good point, Nick. Um, but what you've got to say, you know, IMSA are not unique, but unusual in the fact that their BOP is being looked at all the time. So things like um, boost pressure and fuel flow and other BOP uh, mandated parameters within the performance of, of the individual cars. And effectively, all the cars are BOP'd. So it's not just... GT3, it's called different things, but um, GT3 is a BOP class yeah. globally. Um, but they're, they're getting information all the time. So if somebody overboosts, then they're going to see it. If it's once and it was on a downshift and it's buzzed the engine or whatever, I, I mean, you can't really do that anymore, but you know what I'm saying. They're yeah. going to see that and make a value judgment on it. What they're seeing, and you know, put yourself in IMSA's position, what they're seeing is a car... And they know exactly how many litres are going in because that's been monitored in real time. They're seeing a car putting 81 litres in that's taking 35.4 seconds on average instead of the 40 seconds on average. So, you know, just under five seconds, a pit stop. That's a sizable margin. And they're going to go, right, okay, uh, you know, what's going on here? Um, But I, 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 I take your point. I just think it's... How do you... It's difficult. The, 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 the series is in a difficult situation because they're seeing somebody get an advantage, a sizable advantage per pit stop in a race when that's going to be... I mean, without that, they would have. They never got that back. All right, they had a, another drive-through as well, um, which didn't cost them quite as much. But without that, they would have been contenders for the win. Can't say they would have won, but they would have been on the lead lap and a contender for the win. Um, and they can't get that back at that point. Once they've had the five-minute penalty, they can't get that back. Um it's difficult, isn't it, when you say mm-hmm. we've found something wrong and the team say, yeah, but honestly, we're not doing anything wrong. Because every team, all the way down through the years, says that. It was the way that Christian Land, when he had the interview with, with Joe, and Peter Barron was on there as well, and Di spoke to him as well off mic. It was what they said and how they said it that rang alarm bells with me and why both Jeremy and I, when we weren't in the booth, went and tapped on the shoulders and sweated our contacts to find out what was going on, which is why when I came back into the booth after that, I was confident enough to say they have not broken any rules. They have not broken any rules. They have fallen out of BOP, but they've not broken any rules. Now, if you say BOP but is, is a BOP rule, and that's a question rule. you just yeah. asked, BOP then they broke a rule. There you go. Because it's, it's BOP's a rule, you know, and perhaps, it, again, it's probably it's a williness in the way things are written, but, if, you know, if you, you have to present a car which is legal and the legalness is based on its BOP and apparently, you know, and in the so one the BOPs is you actually fill your tank in 40 seconds if you're putting all 80, 100, whatever it is, litres in. Agreed. And a percentage, and, and, and if yeah, you fill it in agreed. 20 seconds, you can put 40 in. So I, I, to be honest with you, I love ingenious engineering, but I have absolutely no sympathy for them. They knew they were trying to cheat. All right. They knew they weren't trying to cheat the system. They knew they were trying to work the system. They were trying to get an advantage. It's exactly, basically, it's exactly the same as when teams sandbag. Well, there's my next point, you see. So if you have got a reference lap 
time in your mind for each individual car and it's blah. What happens if you get a driver who's just that good and he's three quarters of a second quicker a lap? Well, that we've seen that. We've seen that here. Oh, yeah. we, see, we saw that oh. here last year with V-Lander. You know, d- does that mean you've got to be, bring the car back in and stand it still for five minutes? No, see, I would say no. You've got to be very oh. careful which... Yeah, I don't think we have uh, GT3s all being run around some German circuit by Hans Tower Friends anymore, do we? But um, this is probably, you are in an imperfect environment. You're not going to be able to balance disparate cars perfectly. But something like fuel flow, you know, if you know it's supposed to take 40 seconds, then that's fine. I mean, uh, you know, that should be what should be mandated. And then, well, perhaps not put down the balance performance because once again, engineers and mechanics more intelligent than rule makers. They should just have t- put down your full full t- full should take forty seconds, um, and any percentage less should take the same percentage less. So half half should take twenty, and that would have removed the problem. But they probably thought that by putting the correct throttling on the uh, the downpipe, they were going to solve all their problems. Well, you know. In many ways, they give themselves an extra problem. All they have to say is you need to have your, your pipe attached for 40 seconds each pit stop. doesn't matter how fast it f- flows in. It's just 40 seconds and off you go. I will ask the question that Tim's just asked me on our control chat is that we'll try and get them on the show in the next couple of weeks. Um, I don't know how, how much they'll be prepared to say about it, um, but I will. I'll try and get them on there. And I'd, I'd also like to, you know, I, I think it's very likely that if I sit down um, with Jeff Carter or Simon from, um, from IMSA and, you know, it, it might be that it's put to bed and nobody wants to talk about it anymore. I think it opens up an interesting conversation like the one that you and I have just had there, Nick, um, about... Uh, where does BOP start and finish? And, you know, we've had this at IMSA before. Giuseppe Ricci very nearly left the the old IMSA series, the LMS. I think it was at Baltimore. Um, and it was to do with fueling as well. Um, he uh, engineered, quite legally, in the GTE Ferrari at that time, um, effectively saddlebag tanks. So instead of having one tank, it had two tanks. And, and it redistributed the weight, but it also allowed them to fill faster. And... They were outlawed. Um, they were outlawed after he'd done it. And he'd spent quite a lot of money on the engineer and he'd read the rules very carefully. And there was nothing in the rules at that time that said they couldn't do it. Subsequently, the rules were modified mid-season. And Giuseppe wasn't happy about that. You know, it's the old mass damper thing, isn't it? Middle of the season, mm. changing rules. Well, this was, in some respects, middle of the race, changing rules. But in some respects, not, as you've rightly said. And that's where it's that grey area. It's perfectly imperfect. That, that's brilliant what you said there about this is an imperfect solution to a problem that gets more cars on the GT3 grid. And what we're seeing here... Not for the first time, but we are seeing part of that imperfection in, in bass relief, definitely. Um, you're listening to Midweek Motorsport just after half past eight in the morning here at Bathurst, just after half past nine in the evening yesterday uh, back in London, where Tim Gray uh, has, I think, rejoined us after uh, his dessert. Um, Mark in the VO booth, not happy. It was just yoghurt this evening, Tim. That's not very creative. Well, I, I had a very creative dinner. Really? Yes. How did you create that? What? No, no, explain how creative. How was your dinner creative? Uh, it contained lots of ingredients ah. and was slow cooked for a long time. Are you doing veganuary or did you have meat in it? It had meat in it. Good boy. Well veganuary done. is for cattle. 
<laughs> Couldn't agree more. Though I'm in a minority of one now in my house. Well, you need to. Uh, are you? Well, are you the only no. carnivore in your house you now, need, Nick? You well, need no, to the bring all these, uh, all these, all these uh, children who've uh, gone off. They need to bring them back again. Well, I'll try. I got one back, and then he went to university. Now the others have all gone the wrong way. It's terrible. I have, I have a special. I genuinely have a special shelf for my meat in the fridge. That well, you worse. should keep meat on a separate shelf to everything else in the fridge. <laughs> yes, but it's like a, is that like on the cor- same shelf as the dead small animals that you have to feed the snakes? No, they're, that's in the freezer. You, free, you freeze your mice, John, don't you? Oh, know, really, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> Do you uh, give them other things or just mice? Let's move on from that. No, I'm interested. Um, I mean, they, they just, need some no, variety no. in their no, diet. No, 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 Do they get no, crickets no. and things like that? No, no snakes uh, get all the nutrients they need from the animals they eat and they need to eat one sort of animal which is a, a rodent one of my snakes is well, he's very picky though and only eat small rats and the others all eat mice okay very picky fussy eaters moving on yeah. uh, lizards need to be very tight by the way next week going. on midweek more sport <laughs> the discovery channel <laughs> what were you saying about lizards they need a more varied diet they do need to have different things and they often, most of them are uh, more, omniv- more omnivorous than you'd expect and you nearly always need to have a vitamin supplement for a lizard. Really? Yep. Okay. Uh, who is being inspired by Roger Federer? Somebody old. Somebody who used to be, who's been good, has been injured, has come back and is old. John, who fulfills those criteria? Um, Andy Murray. We're talking about uh, people in the world of motor racing here. Uh, give, give, us a, give us a champion. Oh, okay. Sorry, I thought you were talking tennis. Um, uh, what champion? Uh, um, uh, An Italian. Nico, Nico Rosberg. Not Nico Rosberg. Oh, okay. I said Nico Rosberg before you said an Italian. It just took a while for it to get to you. Today's <laughs> um, not that big. An Italian. It is. Um... <sighs> Dindo Capello. Oh, Not Dindo Capello. Valentino Rossi. Ah, right. Okay. Really? Yes. Thinking on four wheels, not two. Vale. He likes the 2018 bike a lot more than 2017 bike. So much. That it, obviously, the 2017 was a complete dog because apparently um, uh, Johan Zarco, who would normally get the year-old bike, has decided to uh, um, have the two-year-old bike instead, have the 16 bike. So they obviously got completely lost last year with the works bikes. Uh, and they're very happy with the new one from testing in Sepang for three days. And Zarco, it looks like he's going to use a 16 chassis. So the 17 is going to be the pariah, the black sheep of the Yamaha development uh, pack, patterns. Uh, what else did we learn from the Sepang test? Um, Suzuki are better than they were last year. Ducati um, was not a full store. Managed to keep themselves going. And oh, Marquez didn't really show his hand at any point. Uh, the Honda engine was described as being aggressive. Yes, that means hard to control. Lots of horsepower all in one place. <laughs> I'm going to use that next time. Aggressive. Um, aggressive to me means poor drivability. That's the same thing is when you've got a, 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 yeah, having ridden some very powerful motorcycles um, and it's when they you're trying to, they just kick on the they, they get into the uh, the power band and uh, 
and even a four stroke and suddenly you, you find another, another 80 horsepower dumping itself on the rear wheel um, which is quite fun in a straight line but obviously not what you want a race bike because um, that, they'll be doing that during cornering as well because they're different gravy they're not wired the way we are and if a motor GP rider is saying that a bike is aggressive meaning difficult to ride then that would mean for me immortals um, even me immortals who ride motorcycles a lot it would be completely and utterly unrivable Mm. Yeah, three corners. Unrivable. Unrivable. Three yeah, corners. I, mean, I, think... <laughs> right, right. I don't think you get out the pit lane, mate. <laughs> That's true, actually. You flip to the back. Um, no, I think I think what they, what that is basically saying is it's got the power they're looking for, but not the drivability. So they'll be uh, they'll be sending it back to uh, the uh, electronics man to try and calm it down in certain places whilst keeping the basic grunt. Yeah, that seems reasonable. Uh prediction quickly who's going to win uh, motor gp this year oh um uh, you can't it's hard but to look based past on mark. one test in malaysia even though he didn't show it's very hard to look past mark market um but i think i think the surprise of the season is going to be jorge lorenzo okay i think he's, he's i think he'll be, be, he'll be he'll be best ducati which is obviously from being worse ducati last year of all of me, the privateers. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Uh, lifetime Achievement Awards. Uh, Ridley Scott, who else? Have been uh, given out this week to two Good. British greats of motorsport. Okay. Who, who, who's got them? Uh, they were presented by the former MSA chairman, Alan Gow, to Sir Frank Williams. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, who obviously is, agree with that. is uh is a great uh uh bloke. Bloke and uh certainly has achieved a lot in his lifetime. He said this award came out of the blue, but I really am very proud and will treasure it for a long, long time. I've enjoyed every year I've been in Formula One, forty eight of them to be specific. It's been hard work but very rewarding oh work goodness. and I'm truly privileged to have been involved in the world championship. Super. Who's who got the second one? Uh, the other one right. went to Murray Walker OBE. Not a bad pair. Oh, excellent. Uh, who uh, said, I began commentating in 1948, a year before Formula One started, so I've interviewed just about all of the world champions up to Lewis Hamilton, not to mention 13 years with James Hunt. People used to accuse me of writing things on the commentary box wall to slip into the commentary, but it's not like that. You say what comes into your head when you're watching the race live, and that's what I did. It's an honour to receive this award alongside Sir Frank. My walk-up is genuinely as lovely as you think he's going to be. And I know John at the beginning of the programme oh, was yes, talking absolutely about his, agree. Uh, John was talking about his, his his dream dinner he had recently with, with Hurley Hayward and uh, and, and um, Vic Elford. Uh, I had a dinner in Brazil with Jackie Stewart and Murray Walker and I said no words at all for two and a half hours. Oh. <laughs> it's like being at dinner well, with Martin Haven. That's entirely... No, it's not like <laughs> for an entirely different they were, they were, reasons. They were being interesting, and their opinions counted for something. <laughs> Murray Walker, I have been, I have had the great honour of of working with Murray a few years ago now. But um, we worked together in the same commentary box at Silverstone for a Silverstone Classic, and he's mega. 
he uh, I've, I've met him on a number of occasions uh, very nearly had to share a room with him once but that was more of a logistical snafu than uh, anything that was planned um, and I was actually given the room that he was already in uh, when we were both at the same place one time um, and once sorry uh, he always would ask me about sports car racing every time I saw him always greet me shake my hand hello John how you doing which honestly still slightly scrambles my brain and he nick's absolutely right he is that bloke he is that nice guy but he is as well totally and utterly how you saw and heard him when he was doing his radio or tv broadcasts he is that enthusiast and 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 in some ways you know if if the, the technology that we are using now to put this program together and do what we're doing now had been around when Murray started. He would have started midweek motorsport because if it had wheels and they were keeping score, he'd be interested in it. He'd be enthusiastic about it and he'd be talking about it. And his, his generosity of spirit as well as his generosity in his broadcast booth was just magnificent. And, and also, that enthusiasm, and Creelsey's rejoins us here, it's not just a British thing. He's revered around the English-speaking world of motorsport, isn't he? One of the absolute highlights of my career was, and I, I'm trying to phrase this delicately, but Murray was loved in Adelaide, especially through the Grand Prix era, where back in the day, the local broadcaster produced all of the coverage. And... Uh, so Murray worked for Channel 9, as it was back in the day, yes. and um, uh, he was so beloved in Adelaide, as, as Formula 1 was, that the Adelaide 500 supercar race retained him as an ambassador for many years yes. and flew him down. He'd often stay for the Grand Prix afterwards in Melbourne uh, and kept him on as an ambassador. Now, I uh, at one, one day, and, and I'd met Murray at a, an Adelaide motoring event a couple of years ago, and he signed my autobiography. Um, but one day at the Adelaide 500, I, I took a brief drive-through penalty to the gentleman's and was standing there doing what I needed to do and sauntered up next to me. I look across and Murray Walker. I was like, Murray, how are you? And he was like, oh, great. It's so nice to be back in Adelaide. I love this place. And I had three minutes standing there with Murray Walker doing what we needed to do with him telling me how much he loved Adelaide and then we finished and wanted out. So... Amazing. You've got to be very careful where you're looking, having those type of conversations. Uh, yeah, eyes forward. Yeah, absolutely. obviously. Absolutely. There's etiquette but to be... Th there is. You know. But it was, yeah, amazing. I, I'm so very, very pleased that he's been recognised. Uh, Krells, you're back with us, Tim. So um, have you got anything else for, for Nick? Do you want to keep Nick? Or do you want us we'll, to go we'll, on to we'll the matter Nick in hand briefly. here at the Little Molly Bathurst 12? I've got three more things okay. to cover. Uh, some good news, some bad okay, news, great. and some silly news. The news that no one okay. is talking about. The stories that aren't reported anywhere else. And for valid editorial reasons. Pointless press release of the week on Midweek Motorsport. Do you have uh, TCR in Australia yet, uh, Crailsey? Oh, we oh. were only talking oh. about this yesterday. Oh. Do we have another two hours? Uh, the, the short answer is no, not yet, but likely within the next... 12 to 18 months. Uh, in most of the rest of the world, TCR is uh, generally uh, dominated by SEAT Coopers. Uh, more than uh, three quarters of all the TCR eligible cars that have been built ever are SEAT Coopers. Mm -hmm. uh, so this press release has come from SEAT. What's right. faster, the SEAT Cupra or a Javelin? 
depends what, who throws a javelin. Or somebody throwing. <laughs> somebody AMC throwing javelin. a javelin. Oh, very good. Right. Uh, if it's Steve Backley, it's the javelin. Mm. It's not Steve Backley. It's uh, Barbara Spotakova, the Olympic javelin Ooh. champion and sad right, okay. grand ambassador. Yeah. Yeah, I'm guessing that probably You're therefore it's Barbara. If you're a car manufacturer, would you not rather prefer that your car be faster than a javelin? You would, wouldn't you? Speaks yeah. the man with his PR hat on. Yeah. <laughs> There'd be no point of the release otherwise. No. Seat beaten by a woman throwing yeah. a long stick. <laughs> exactly. Not a great story, that, is it? <laughs> no. So Barbara Spotikova uh, <laughs> has won two gold medals in Beijing in 2008 and in London in 2012. Uh, so while in training, she accepted the challenge of testing herself against the Sautland Cooper. Uh, and they right. did this in Prague. Right. For no apparent reason. Uh, Go on, then. So before Do it one. started, the driver of the Sautland started the uh, engine, which is a 2-litre <laughs> TSI, uh, while uh, Barbara was psyching herself up. And said, in order to concentrate on what my body's right. going to do, my mind has to be completely blank. I focus on a spot on the other side of the stadium and virtually project my throw over there. While well there was done. revving going on in the background to distract her. Uh, so they did this as a best of three. Right. Um, right. Uh, the Seat uh, Leon uh, can accelerate from 0 to 100 kilometers an hour in 4.9 seconds. Blimey. Uh is that front-wheel right. drive? Or yes. four-wheel drive? Front-wheel drive. Yes. No, yes. front-wheel drive. All TCRs have to be front-wheel drive. A bit scrabbly, wouldn't it? Yes. Uh, the Javelin uh, travels at seven metres per second. Right, great. We are translated with right. speed. In seven metres the... per second is speed. It's perfect. That's velocity. That, that, is, that is a measure yeah, of velocity. That, that's not kilometres an hour, though, is it? Yeah, you can translate it. So... But they should. As I say, best of three. Uh, the Sayat won the first. Well done, Sayat. The Javelin won the second. Oh, well done, Javelin. And so it went Ooh. down to the third and final attempt. The Krago wall. The I'm Javelin the flew through the air at 90 kilometres an hour. Well done. But right. could not outpace a Sayat Leon. Lucky, isn't it? Isn't it? Mm. Mm. Krilsey you know, with his PR hat on know, is now just he, I can see him thinking about all the things that could have gone wrong with yes. that aside from uh, but, but, I left the window open oh look there's a javelin in the car with me fantastic stuff let's move on because we've got a lot to talk about we've yes, got an awful lot to talk uh, about so, come on team speed up here we go then, uh, which is uh, right. about Townsend Bell He's uh, got his stuff nicked, isn't he? While, oh, yes. While he, he was, was in Daytona, his he, stuff was yes. being removed from his house. Including the, winner's watches uh, uh, from Daytona and championship rings and things like that. Yes. Um, abs- absolutely horrible story. Um, it's, it's, it's received good coverage, I'm pleased to say, and people keeping their eyes open. There's, there's a market for that kind of memorabilia, but quite clearly... Now that everybody knows that um, it's been knocked off and it's schneid, let's hope that the thieving whatnots who did that, breaking into somebody's home is one of the worst things you can do, invading that space and taking that stuff. 
Um, yes, things can be replaced, but it's 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 really an awful crime burglary, and I hope they get found and I hope they get the book thrown at them. Uh, all of the or nearly all Moving of the uh, stolen items were in a locked safe. Uh, they stole the whole safe mm. and part of the wall uh, that uh, it was attached to. Yeah. Uh, and five of his neighbours were also burgled. Mm, yeah, it was a it was a concerted effort. Uh, moving on. Uh, finally, some good news. Do you remember Hooray. ten years ago? Excellent. Yes, I do vaguely. We had. I do remember ten years ago. <laughs> we we had a young Carter in the studio. Ollie Milroy. Ollie Milroy. He's going to be a daddy. He is going yes. to be a daddy. Oh. oh my god, that makes me feel old, doesn't I it? I know. I know. But well, hooray. Well done, well done, racing drivers for having. More that was at the fun. old studios in central London, it was, wasn't it? Yes, I remember that when we didn't have enough chairs. I remember for that. Um, are we going to? St- there's never enough chairs for everybody. Are we going to say goodbye to Nick now? And we Krill's can United? say goodbye oh, to are Nick. We, are now. we doing the Shane Johnny show after this? By the way, yes. I've decided to call it uh, Johnny and Shane's Excellent. Paddock Walkabout. Oh. Lose the word paddock and just go walkabout and then be like the Johnny Agatha film. Shea is Johnny Oh, yeah, Agatha. very good. Johnny and Shea's walkabout. Yeah. Um, thank you, Nick. Nice. See Have you a great race. Have next a great week. Race. Are you coming over for dinner next week? No, I'm, in, I'm, in, yeah, I'm doing mate. another Bye. dull show in, in, in Holland. <laughs> oh, I forgot to ask you, Nick, before you disappear. Right. Uh, yeah. How did you enjoy uh, your uh, special event at the weekend? What, my three-day... Well, it wasn't so bad in the end, because due to the fact that it was a double room, I managed to get um, Rachel to come down with me, and we spent one of the evenings went to see Mamma Mia in the West End. What was that it like? Wasn't quite as bad as it... Of course you did. Was... Get him off now. Get him off. Get him off now before he sings. Goodbye, Tim. Goodbye, Nick, rather. I'm uh, right, so coming up after this show, Johnny's, Johnny and Shea's walkabout... Uh, Took some time yesterday in the paddock to have a wander around, look at some of the cars, have a chat with some of the drivers. Stay tuned for that here on RS1. Krillsy back with us. Um, if you haven't heard our wanderings uh, of thoughts, st- Stream of Consciousness programme, um, it's worth a download. It will be getting replayed uh, throughout the week up until we go live on, on Friday. Um, we recorded that relatively recently, so it was up to, as up-to-date as it could be. Um, what's the headline news from the Liquid Molly Bathurst 12 hours this week? We've had loading. Uh, it's all going well. The place, By the way, the mountain has never looked any better. New signage. It looks great. The track's just starting to weather in a little bit now from the repave a few years ago. We've got glamping at Turn 1. Yep. Uh, I mean, th- this is going to be a huge race, isn't it? Yeah, it just, and we say this every year and, and every, all the five years that you've been here in particular it just gets bigger and bigger every year but it's taken another step up hasn't it in presentation but in terms of quality and, and we rambled on about it for two hours about the field and Shay and Johnny I, I'm sure will reach the same conclusions as us is that there's no conclusion about no. who's going to win this race or finish inside the top 10 it's so I'm rolling the dice open. as you speak yes. because you, honestly you yeah, put names pick, on a dartboard pick your name out of a hat and yep. see what happens but but from an event perspective, it is it just continues to grow. Uh, and where the ceiling for it is, I don't know. And even from where we sit in our commentary box that will be on uh, 7 Mate over the course of the weekend uh, on Australian free-to-air domestic television, 13 Which and a half hours of extraordinarily, live by the way. and free TV, yeah. Live um, terrestrial network television, 13 and a half. Yes, it's got some ad breaks on that. Not if you're watching the international stream. Mm. But 
the, t the guys in a new and improved TV compound behind, which has grown up massively as well. Um, the guys, all races, it's Nathan who's top dog this year, got yep. a promotion. Well done to Nate. Um, and he understands about racing, so if and when there's the opportunity to bang, get ahead on the ads, he will do. I think we had the last 45 minutes ad-free last yeah, year. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But from where we're sitting, the, the area across us in Harris Park here at Mount Panorama, much more manufacturer yes. activation. The brands involved have all stepped up their investment in the race and their activations around it. And, and as those involved in motor racing from a commercial side know, it's great to field a race car on the racetrack, and that's tremendous, but... Your real value is the money that you spend outside of that and activating and pushing Correct. your involvement to the, the punters. And that's how the event grows. And that's where we're seeing a lot of growth. We didn't have time in our preview show to talk about the support events. Uh, but the support events here are mm. just as, as big a part of what goes on. And they are becoming very popular in their own right for the international audience. And yeah. there will be some coverage on Saturday on the international stream all of the support the, all events. All the support categories will be shown on Saturday from which, start to finish. Which are what this year? So the I've, I've been watching some of the classic cars coming in and, and it's mouthwatering. Yeah, drooling, I know. Uh, so the, the three support categories are the Radical Australia Cup. So it's the opening round of their national championship. And if you haven't seen Radicals around the mountain before, you are in for a treat. Yes, it is absolutely as bonkers as it sounds. Yes, yeah, they shouldn't really race here. <laughs> I don't think, but they do, and they do it well. Um, and the so, lap times are extraordinary. Yeah, they're pretty quick. Uh, so Radical Australia Cup combined sedans, which I know you oh, love. It's still of, my beating it's heart. It's sort of an, an only in Australia category because it's a mishmash of a whole bunch of different racing cars here. So old V8 supercars that are deregistered and racing, sports sedans, which are wild things with wings, six-litre Chev V8s, fiberglass bodies, lightweight. So that's a silhouette category. Quick, yeah, 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 but basically home-built specials. Right, um, with the big rear wings. Big that, rear wings, yeah, yeah. big front splitters right, okay. made in, in your garage. Um, Trans Am cars, there's there's a whole bunch of TA2 cars in Australia now, so right. I think there's about eight of those that have come down from Queensland to run. It's just a bit of everything. Old-school muscle cars... And how well. many of those have we got? That seemed to 55. be a big... I was going to say that was a big paddock full, when I drove in. Full grid, 55 cars. Right. Uh, and the third category, which is making its debut at the 12-hour, is Group S. And Group S is a sports car category for cars, sports cars from the 50s, 60s and 70s. Yeah. So it's seen a couple of old MGs, Heelys. MGs, Heelys through to 911s to Chevy Corvettes. There's a Di Tommaso Pantera. Oh, my God, there's yeah. not. Yep, there is. Driven by Rusty <sighs> French, one of the greats of the sport. Uh, so they've got an oversubscribed grid as well. They had they had more than 60 nominations for a 55-car grid. I really like them being here because it's basically what GT3 is now back, yeah, back yeah, then. Yeah, 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 It's exactly. a real nod to the history of sports car Road-derived sports cars. Yep, so you'll be able to catch all of them on the stream on Saturday, both in Australia and around the world. Uh, we've got a support race commentary team that will be in bringing you those. Yep. And uh, it's going to be good racing. Uh, they'll be short, sharp sprints. The Radicals have got, I think, two 40-minute mini Enduros. Uh, the rest of them are all bang, bang, short, sharp races. And that video stream, by the way, um, Tim will have it on the RadioLeMond.com site. It'll be very obvious of how to get to it with our Bathurst content. Uh, interspersed with that, of course, we've got Liquid Molly 12-hour uh, practice and qualifying. And if again, if you're new to this, and a lot of people asking last weekend, when we mentioned it at Daytona, to, uh, just to make Crazy smile, <laughs> the fact that we were at Daytona yeah. mentioning that yeah. Liquid Molly Bath is 12 hours. The shootout on Saturday, one of my 
Krilzy a couple of weeks ago asked us for our um, thoughts about the race and some of our memories. And the shootout for me is one of the gems of this event. It's pure. Yep. It's man and machine versus the mountain. Yep. Yeah, and, and a shootout here has been part of the vernacular of this place since the late Absolutely. 1970s with the 1000. Remains to this day one of the absolute key moments as one of the Porsches that races in Group S drives past our commentary box. What's that, about 73, 4? Yeah, a bit later than that. RS, yeah. that, was, that was a bit later than that. That was a late 70s, early 80s car yeah, with lovely. the big bumpers. Yeah, nice. Uh, I digress. Um, <laughs> it's such a good... Do yourself a favour. There are two videos you need to watch on YouTube before this yes, weekend. One I know what you're going to say. is Shane Van Gisbergen's poll lap from 2016. Yes. Which was extraordinary. Uh, and that's still the fastest ever lap officially recorded here. Yes. In competition. In competition. Yes. Let's put it that way. Lap yeah. record can be yeah. set. Um, two is Scott McLaughlin's poll lap. It's on the official Supercast channel. Scott McLaughlin's poll lap from the 1000 here last October. Otherworldly. Which is one of the most committed displays of maximum attack driving you will ever see. And, it, it and we it. could have Scotty and Gizzy going against each other in the shootout. In the same car, basically, in similar McLarens. So, exactly. Yeah. So and, and I'm already slightly hyperventilating about that thought. Yeah. And what's more, last year in the shootout, it was hot. It was real yes, it was. hot. And heat affects these cars at this track yes. more than anywhere else in this country, especially. So... Remember, we saw some cloud come over in the last three cars yeah. that went out. Lap times dropped by seven or eight tenths. Saturday at the moment here, 24, 25 degrees, patchy cloud. If you could dial up shootout conditions, they're it. Yeah. So lap time potential is who knows, but will they go quicker than a 201.2? Probably, probably. And that's going to be knocking on the door of 120 seconds, aren't we? And my head will explode if there's a sub two minute lap. Your head will explode. Poor. We're going to have some issues in here if that's the case. Hey, look, final. you know, we saw a 1982 distance record mm. from Daytona, which nobody thought would be seen beaten in, in mm. their lifetime. Not broken, but taken up to 35,000 feet and slam dunked yeah. onto the floor, broken into tiny pieces yeah. last weekend. We could be seeing motorsport history again here this yeah, weekend. Yeah, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me. And, and again, people ask, why is qualifying so important? One... The history of it at this place alone makes it worthwhile. Two, this race has never been won from lower than seventh on the grid. And we start in the dark, and bad yep. things happen in the dark. Yep. And if you're in the middle of the pack, you know, if you're the man at the front, yep. it's all happening behind you. Yeah, so you can be a PR guy, and, and that's what I do most of the time, and trot out the line of, oh, it doesn't matter where we start, it's a long race, we get through it, rubbish. You've got to be towards the front for that opening hour or the peril level increases exponentially. Agreed. So getting into that shootout is vital and then doing a good job in it's that. It's worth taking a risk. Better. It's worth taking a risk to air get into the shootout and yep. once you're in the shootout, then you can make a decision. The worst you're going to be is 10th. And from a purely commercial point of view, it's a commercially driven sport. Where else are you going to have two and a half minutes of cameras just looking at good your point. car, no other cars, no broad shots of the track. It's just you, your car, maximum attack. And Amazing us going ooh and ah, as we are, because the, we just run out of yeah. words at the shootout. It's going to be fun. It's going to be the great. The quality of driver. There's teams here that it's rock, paper, scissors to who does the lap. Yeah. Because they've got... I'm expecting brawls behind us in the paddock oh, yeah. between the drivers. Because they'll all want to do it. Yeah, yeah. So do you go the GT3 driver who knows the car intimately, or do you go the supercar driver who knows the track intimately... I, don't, I mean, it's pistols at 50 feet, that one. There's just no other way to uh, work it out. 
Uh, Richard Creel will be part of our team. We'll be part of his team as well because it's a, a grand uh, sort of cooperative event here with Seven Sports who are here in force. And you'll be able to see the fruits of all of our labour uh, from Saturday. Here, the early sessions, exclusively live here on RS1, uh, part of the Radio Show Limited Network of Channels. Creelsy, you've done uh, brilliantly already. A couple of tweets before we go tonight, Tim. What do you have? Uh, right Tone Lover has sent us a picture of a Gloucester javelin. Oh, yes, very good. That would have beaten the Seat. Oh, that's that, that, that's a, 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 an early, an oh, early, yeah, jet, jet, uh, an early yes. jet fight, uh, jet plane, yeah. Uh, and also yeah. Adrian Michael Reese sent us the Hitachi javelin, which is also substantially faster than the Seat. Okay, that sounds good. That's a train uh, that javelin, I probably think not. Yes, yes, sorry. Uh, thank you very much to Nick Damon, to Richard Creel, who's alongside me, and we've been entertaining the early birds in the Liquid Molly Bathurst 12 hour press room, which is just off to our right. Uh, Tim Gray was our executive producer, the responsible adult who oversees us all uh, is Eve Hewitt, who hasn't had to uh, intervene at all this morning. I've been carefully watching our control feed and nothing has come in and uh, Tim made a laugh at least a couple of times. So all is good on that. I've got to go now because uh, there's no time to explain. The llama's off to cook breakfast for the rest of the team. Bye-bye. Stay tuned for Johnny and Shea. This programme is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMond.com.